Welcome to Managing Projects, the podcast for project managers in search of trends and insights. Join us as our guests dig deep into the thought-provoking topics that matter most to project management professionals. You can find all the episodes at managingprojects.ca. And now, here's your host, Ron Smith. Good morning. It's Ron Smith here from Managing Projects, and I have Mike Hayes from Changing Leap from Moncton, New Brunswick. He is a leadership coach and facilitator, and he's been doing that since January of 2015. Welcome, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me, Ron. Good to hear your voice. Good to hear your voice. I wonder if you just tell us a little bit about what Changing Leaf is. Yeah, excellent. So Changing Leaf was birthed out of a transition that I experienced from my corporate career. I spent 20 years with a, a great organization in the uh, courier transportation industry. That's where I really developed this love of leadership development and coaching and facilitating. So with 20 years of experience, uh, I received that, you know, that golden handshake that thanks for your, thanks for your contributions, but we, uh, we're going to transition without you. And I was faced with that decision, Ron, of like deciding, do I join another organization after 20 years or do I start my own thing? And this pull towards entrepreneurship and beginning of my own organization was so strong that I, I couldn't ignore it. So I opened up my uh, my business in 2015 and everything I did in my corporate career, I'm now doing independently and working with multiple organizations, different industries from profit to nonprofit. And really anywhere where there's a leader who says, you know what, I, I need to get better. I want to get better. I want to grow. I want to develop. Those are the types of people that I'm working with today. And I'm, I'm doing uh, coaching with these leaders. I'm helping uh, develop their teams together as well, too, through leadership and management development workshops. I'm doing keynote talks for organizations, and I'm having a, an absolute blast. Uh, it's, it's been a great ride so far. And, uh, yeah, I'm just helping make leaders better because when leaders get better, everybody that interacts with that leader wins and uh, their, their performance elevates as a result. So it's, that's what I'm so up to. True. You can see it and you also, you, you can actually see uh, great leadership. You can see bad leadership as well too. We've all experienced a bad leader, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, and that's a mixture. You know, we're all human and we're all growing and we're all different stages. You know, it's not like a born skill often that, you know, I've seen a lot transition to become real, real people leaders. Yeah, absolutely. And you're, you're totally right when you said that it, people aren't born with these skills. It's something that that they learn is something that uh, that uh, we can teach people. And what I've seen a lot of organizations do is that they they see these high performers that are individual contributors, and they think, well, you're so great at what you do, you'd make a great you'd make a great manager. So they thrust them into a management role, but they don't give them any of the the skills to build their capabilities. And and we see these people uh, failing as a result. But when organizations invest in their people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. give them the development that they need, then the, then we see them succeed, and the team succeeds too. It's the Peter principle. And I've seen this, uh, so, so my background is in IT, and you see this with people growing up through the ranks, and they're very technical. They're, they're one of the smartest cats in the room. They love it. They can solve any technical problem at all. And then they, and then the company says, well, there's no other place to put you once you get to this portion of your career. So let's turn you into a manager so that you can now manage people. And we're going to give you a little bit more authority inside the company. And these are people that just, they love to code or they love to uh, dissect technical issues. But then it's a different skill set when you get into the soft skill side of the house of dealing with people. Because they're really there to help their folks grow. 
Oh, absolutely. And I, I think also to your point, Ron, there's, there's also a letting go of the work that they've loved to do for so long. And, you know, to, to put them in a position where, okay, you're no longer going to be the doer of that task. You're going to develop the people now who are going to do that task. And it's a letting go of that work that you've loved to do for so long and letting someone else do it. And that's a transition that, that we have to prepare people for as they move from being the technician to the, to, to the leader of the technicians, right? Oh, I can, I can totally relate. So, okay. So now, now you really piqued my interest. So, so here's a scenario. Um, you, you get called into a local IT shop. The scenario I just gave, you've got this whiz bang, um, technical programmer guy who's a bit of a geek and everybody loves him because he's been doing so well, top of his game and he's getting the old promotion. So now he's going to have a team of developers. You know, what would you say to that guy or, or what are the, what are the types of topics that you would go over with them to get him ready for that type of transition? Well, what, one of the first things I would probably talk to him about a little bit is, you know, how's he, how's he feeling about the transition he's about to experience and what are some of the, what are the things that he's excited about? What are some of the things that, uh, that, that, that he's concerned about as well and try to deal with the, the reality of, uh, what he's seeing and feeling as he's about to transition, uh, and get get that out on the plate and try to figure out if there's a way that I can coach and support him through that. And I'm sure there would be. But also, what I would really spend some time on is uh, the art of delegation. How do you delegate work well so that people feel valued and supported and empowered, versus the temptation that most of us would have in that situation to micromanage people? Because if 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 I've been doing something for so long. I've probably become quite skilled at it. I may have actually written the process, right? I, I may be the one who actually came up with the best way of how to do this task. And so now I'm being asked to let that go and let someone else do that. That's not an easy thing to do. So I would really talk to that that young whiz kid about how to delegate properly so that people feel valued and how to be okay with it not being done the way that you've always done it. And if I could get him to just grasp that principle alone, that would be a breakthrough because a lot of people have a hard time delegating when they're in that position now because they, they see someone else doing the work that they've done for so long. Like, oh, you know what? You're not doing it the way I would do it. I'm just going to come and I'm going to take that away from you again and, and I'll, I'll deal with that and I'll, I'll try to find something else for you to do. That doesn't add value to people and people can't grow under a micromanager. They can only grow under somebody who's secure as a leader who can let the work go and let someone else do it with their, with their own style and approach. So if this manager pulls himself down into the weeds and only focuses on one thing, then that's all that's accomplished. Yeah, I, I would actually call it uh, increasing your capacity. If I'm the only one who knows how to do it right now, today, I, I have a limited amount of capacity to uh, achieve results and to perform and to produce whatever it is I'm producing. But as soon as I actually build someone else's capabilities to do that thing, what I've done now is I've increased my capacity. And I've increased my options as well, too. So if I can actually get other people on my team to do that thing that only I've done, and now all of a sudden more people are, are capable of producing the results for that particular piece of work, we're increasing our capacity to produce results. All of a sudden now we can scale the business to new levels because we have more people that are capable than ever before, right? Mm. So you know, it's it's about empowering people, Ron. That's what it really is. And And some leaders who aren't really secure, think, well, if I empower that person, then I'm giving my power away. But the truth is, is that if you empower somebody, you, you don't lose power yourself. You just increase it and, and you have more power now. When you empower mm. someone else, it increases the capacity to get 
get more, more things done and, and businesses are pressured to get more things done now. Right. So, um, yeah, it's, it's about increasing your capacity through empowering other people. Let's say you're a director moving into a VP position. Is there a different mindset between the two transitions of someone who is basically a, a team member? They have a small team. They're going to start managing more to someone who is, say, a director level going up to a VP. Does do you approach that differently? Yeah, for sure. And you used a great word, mindset, right? I think the mindset uh, does change when you go from one level to the next. And what I mean by that is I think the way that you see things is really different because I think when you are, when you're at the, the top in an organization, uh, you need to be seeing things before other people see things. So you need to be anticipating trends. You need to be really connected into your industry and what's happening as far as innovation is concerned. Mm. So if you, if you want to be, if you want to be ahead of your competition, you really have to know what's, what's coming on the horizon and not only having the knowledge of what's coming as far as like trends and anticipating customer demand, but it's also then envisioning your organization in that space. So you've got to envision what's your organization going to look like a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. And to have that type of long distance view, then to bring that into your organization with an inspiring message of what the future looks like and the believability that you've got the right people in the organization to achieve that, that vision is really important. So as that top leader brings that message down within the organization to the various levels, it's got to be communicated with great clarity, but it's also going to be a message that inspires people to, to want to be part of it. Right. And as it, as it filters down to the front lines, it's really the front line people who, who really do the work to make that vision a reality. Mm. So the, the clarity, the clarity of the message and in actually involving those people in the discussions about you know, what they see as far as the future goes and how they believe that they need to change and adapt in order to, uh, to deliver on that, that future vision is really important as well too. Right. And, uh, somebody that's done a lot of work on this that I really like as far as an author is concerned is Patrick Lencioni. And he talks about this in his books with uh, the five dysfunctions of the, of a team and one of the books that he has called the advantage. Um, and he talks about this concept, Ron, of team number one, like who's your number one team, right? And a lot of people, if, if you ask them, what's, what's your number one team when you have a, a group of people that you're leading, they'll say, well, my number one team is the team that I lead. And he challenges that. And he says, you know what? Your number one team actually needs to be the uh, team that you're a member of. So even though you, you lead a team of people and they're really important, what you need to prioritize is the team that you are a member of over the team that you lead. And the reason he says that is because when there's great cohesion and organizational health on the team that you're a member of at an executive level, everyone in the organization benefits from that cohesiveness, that clarity, that real team spirit when, when uh, executives and, and leaders prioritize the team that they're a member of. And then they can take that enthusiasm and bring it into the team that they, that they lead. And it's also a great opportunity for alignment as well, too. Think of it somewhat as, as you're progressing up through an organization, your viewpoint is what you can control, some of the observations that you're making in the seat that you're in. Maybe you term that your primary viewpoint. And as you're mm. kind of climbing the trees to some degree, you can see out longer and you're looking for strategy. To some degree, you're, you're learning how to manage up as well. What I've learned over the years is how much I appreciate, as I became manager's, how much I appreciated those team members that had helpful insights 
and said, oh, you know what, there's there's a real opportunity here, and I think we need to pay attention to this. Yeah, without, without question. Like, you know, when I loved what you said. When you're climbing the tree, you can you can see, like, far off in the distance, right? And that's necessary. But then when you come to executing the strategy, like the day-to-day work that needs to happen to get closer to that vision, that's when you really need to connect with the people who are doing the work because they have – they have the experience, they have the insight, they have the knowledge as to whether we are on the right track. Or they can tell you like right away, hey, you know what, that idea that you had in the boardroom, it sounded really great on paper, but here in this real situation, here's some of the obstacles that you probably didn't identify that are going to prevent us from doing it the way that you thought we could do it. And if you take care of this, this, and this, then we can do what you're talking about. But if you don't deal with these things, this is always going to be a problem and a barrier for us. Here's a better way. And they can tell you, and that's the challenge of leadership as well, too, as you climb up to ensure that you remember where you came from, because where you came from is where the solutions reside. So you got to connect back to that from time to time. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't do the work, though. You got to let people do the work. Just go back and have a conversation that's that you want to get some understanding from, right? That's important, too. <laughs> Hey, this is Ron. I've been an Audible member for a long time. I'm taking a short break from the interview to let you know how you can support the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. If you have not checked it out, then you need to. And I want to make a recommendation on a specific book this week. I want to recommend the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, What the Rich Teach Their Kids About Money That the Poor and Middle Class Do Not by Robert Kiyosaki. It's a great read. You can download this week's recommendation or pick another audiobook for free and support this podcast at the same time by visiting managingprojects.ca forward slash audible. That's managingprojects.ca forward slash audible. Now back to the interview. You know, there's there's a major theme going on right now. A lot of the um, a lot of the projects that I've been running lately, probably I would say um, for the last four or five years in my industry, there's there's always been a change manager that's been put on these projects. And it's it's really quite telling that there's now a whole role inside of these projects that basically is of this mindset. There's about to be a change. Someone has set mm-hmm. a vision and all and really what they're doing is they're measuring at different points along the way is the company coming. So is the, so it, from every level of, from the CEO to the middle management down to all the worker bees, you know, you see this pro sci and the Cotter models and that kind of thing. And, and really what they're, what they're saying is there's a vision that's been, that has been set. Let's pull the company to say, number one, who's aware of the vision, you know, who's desiring to follow them, this whole ad car model. Um, yeah who has the knowledge to and are they a resistor to it or are they supporting it? It is so interesting that you say when you start to lead, you need to first of all understand where we should be going, but then ensure the company is. <laughs> but there's this whole role now in all of these projects that that's what really what they're doing. So if they're, if you're, if they're saying here's a vision that we've set, and the company is not going, and we can tell by interviewing these different groups of people. We'll ask them a question. Well, were you aware of the project? Nope, never heard of it. Well, they're not coming. <laughs> they're not coming. Yeah. Okay. Are, are you aware of why we would do this? Are you aware of the pain point of why we're going to do this? Nope, I don't really get why you're doing it. Well, they're not coming either. 
Because it's not obvious, I don't think, to to people. It's something that they have to work at and they have to try it. And I've heard it said before, this whole vision, vision casting has to be very clear and said so many times before you'll you'll believe that it's truth. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think in the context of change, it's interesting you, you bring up, you know, change because change really is all about bringing something from the future into the present situation, right? That's, that's really what it is. It's like, we're not currently doing this now. We have a vision for how it could be better. So we need to implement a change. And I think what happens in a lot of organizations concerning is the organization ready for change? is that at a certain level, there's these discussions that are happening about change and implementing change, and they happen behind closed doors for about four or five months. And everybody in that room has had a chance to go through the emotional roller coaster of, of is this going to work? Is it not going to work? To they, to the, to, to they get to a place, Ron, where they've had the debates, they've had the discussions, everybody's now on board, and everybody's now excited about the change. And so they come out from those closed doors and they try to introduce this change to the organization and people aren't excited about it initially. People aren't enthused about it. People are concerned. They were, they didn't go with you through that, yeah. you know, the hills and valleys of figuring out what the strategy is. That's right. Yeah. And, and yeah. we forget, we forget that, right? So we get back in a boardroom and go, well, why are people excited about this change? People are resisting the change. It's like, well, they're hearing about it for the first time and there's a real, there's a real temptation to try to push through that and try to sell people on the benefits of the change. Well, what we need to do as change leaders is just slow down a little bit and talk to people and find out, okay, what, what's, what are, what are your concerns? How can I clarify this for you as to the reasons why we, we are going in this direction and just really uh, take the time to, to, to really be with people and find out, okay, what's, what's going on in your world and how can I help you? Yeah, Absolutely. When you are looking for um, enlightenment or to hear about new trends in the industry? Yeah, well, one of the things that I make sure that I do every year, Ron, is a couple of things. I, I go to a, uh, some some leadership development seminars and conferences. So one of them is a leader cast that usually happens, uh, I think it's in April, April or May, I believe, every year. And... Uh, Global Leadership Summit that happens in August. And the reason I go to these leadership development conferences is because at those conferences are current thought leaders, speakers, authors from multiple different industries. And that's how I, how I get exposure to who is, um, who's writing about leadership and the, the topics that I care about, right? That's how I get introduced to Patrick Lencioni and I actually got to meet him in person at one of the conferences that I went to. So oh, no way, really. Yeah. I've read some yeah. of his books. I really like his writing. I like his writing too. And I think what people, a lot of people appreciate about it is that his style is they're all written in fables. So there's characters that are introduced, they're quick reads. And at the end of the book, there's a, you know, about 20 pages of theory, but the rest of the book reads like a novel, right? So as you're reading it, you're thinking, Oh, I think I've worked with some of these people, right? <laughs> so <laughs> You can't not picture <laughs> as you're yeah. going through the books, you cannot, you can't not picture a person from your past that fits some yeah. of these I know he captures it. Yeah, he nails it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So anything on like uh, teamwork, definitely Patrick Lencioni for sure. A, a book that I'm reading right now on, I, I guess you'd probably put it under the personal development category is High Performance Habits by Brendan Burchard. And 
what a great, what a great read so far, just about really seeking clarity and understanding, um, yourself as a, as a, as a person, not necessarily a leader, but as a, as a person in life, right? Like what, what kind of person do you want to be and who do you want to become? And he really gives a nice uh, roadmap for, uh, building your, your capabilities as a, as an individual and, and you also as a leader, you can't help but really get into that leadership space because ultimately, when you're talking about leadership, the first person you lead is yourself. You want to be at a level where you're performing as to your capabilities, to your potential, and you want to be a high performing person or a high performing leader. There's certain habits that are going to get you to that level, right? And nobody's going to do it for you. You've got to do it. You've got to do it for yourself. So it's really about uh, upping your game to perform at uh, peak levels. Not only for yourself and if you're an individual con- contributor, but if you're a leader as well, it's more important, I think, as a leader to elevate your game so that you can be a model for that, uh, that performance improvement for others to, to emulate. Um, John Maxwell talks about this in his book, 21 Year Refutable Laws of Leadership. He talks about the law of the lid and he really says that, uh, your leadership ability is the lid that's going to determine your effectiveness. So another way to think about this, Ron, is if today you and I both decided for some reason or another that, you know what, we were all done learning. We we knew everything we needed to know about everything. And we're just like, we're not going to read another book. We're not going to watch another TED Talk. We're not going to go to another conference. We're not going to learn anything more because our brains are full and we just want to be excused from that whole process of learning. I've learned well, enough. Yeah, I've, my brain is full. I need to be excused, right? So if we if we made that decision, which would be a, an absolutely stupid decision, but if we did that, uh, what John says is that that's the lid that you place upon your effectiveness as a leader. So out of 10, if 10 is the highest and one is the lowest, if you and I rated like about a six today, yeah. well, the, the problem with that is that the people on our teams, they, they are – Either they're going to do one of two things. They are either going to look at us and go, wow, you're not growing. You're not developing. I don't really want to uh, be part of, of, of your world anymore because you're at a six and I, I'm at like an eight. So yeah. I can't learn anything from you. So I'm moving on. Or what ends up happening as well too is those eights look at you and go, well, okay, I guess that's how we, we do things around here. I'm going to lower myself to a, to a five or a four and become smaller under your leadership. So that's the law of the lid. And leaders that are really effective that are continuously growing and developing and building their capabilities are always looking to raise the lid on their leadership because they know that if I'm raising my lid as a leader, then other people are going to be raising their lid as well too because they look at that and go, you know what? I want to, I want to lead like you. I want to grow and develop like you. I see how you treat people. I see how you have visions about where we need to go. I see how you inspire and motivate. I see how you encourage. I see how you navigate, um, lack of clarity for us and, and help us to go from here to there. That's a leader who's growing, who's always raising the lid. And that's what we need more of. Yeah. Did Tim Saunders not own, not only write that book, but the likability factor. Yeah. Tim Saunders wrote that book and he wrote another great book called love is a killer app. Oh, I've read both. Oh, you're taking yeah. me back. So I've attended yeah, yeah. some of these sessions that you, that you just mentioned a few minutes ago. So leader cast, I, I, I probably attended five years of that over our 10 year span. I have yet yep. to be the, to the global leadership summit, but I'm going to have to put it on my uh, schedule for this year. Absolutely. What, so, so my own observations though, and when I read this book, the likability factor by Tim, Tim Sanders. Um, so, so the crux of it is 
So I, I do believe that people are looking for to like their leaders. Like, do I do I think that they're smart enough to run the company? So that's kind of like this given. So if you're in a leadership position, you need to be. You need to have the skills to run a company and, and the, the visionary and all that stuff. But then there's this awkwardness that says, do I like that person? And, mm-hmm. and if the answer is no, like, a, like, yeah, the guy can rent a company, but I'd never invite him over for supper. I don't want him to really know who I am. I find myself not wanting to really follow where this guy is going. And I consider it almost a transaction of services now that says, you know, I'm learning, I'm employed in a company that is making use of my skills. So I'm going to see this out for a certain time. But what I've found in my own personal observation is when I can really connect with the leader of that company, somehow it it changes. It's not just, it is those things. Like they're using my skills. I'm involved in a company that I think they have the right technical vision and, and approach for the company. Um, but something changes in me that says, you know, I'm, I'm now desiring to work harder for that company. For some reason, I'm putting my shoulder into it more. And I think that this is the contagious uh, view that's held within companies. But I had a hard time articulating it until I read Tim's book, The Likeability Factor. Yeah, without question. Um, all, all the things that you said are true, right? And I, I think of, I think of leaders that I've had in the past and those who I didn't naturally connect with. Uh, I did what I needed to do to get the job done, but I didn't give everything. You know what I mean? Like I, there was things that I held back, like I certain held back some of maybe my best ideas. In, in some situations, right? And they didn't get all of me. I wasn't mm-hmm. fully engaged. And it's, it's that's just this something as simple as likability, like Tim wrote about, or do I really connect and resonate with this person? And I think of other leaders that I've had who, you know what? I would, I would be on the battlefield with them because I know that they are right there with me and they're resourcing right. me. And I, you know, it's, it's a totally different dynamic. Um, somebody else that's written a lot about this. Uh, this is coming up for me now is Liz Wiseman and her book multipliers. Oh, yeah. You, you've got to read this book. It's absolutely fantastic. So she talks about the contrast between, uh, multipliers and diminishers. The full title of the book is how the great leaders make everyone smarter. Okay. Ooh. And multipliers are not only likable, uh, they also, they build relationships with people and everything as well, but they, they have like a hard edge to them where they have expectations that you're going to perform and you're going to deliver. So there's a, there's a combination there. And then diminishers, they, they just make everybody else smaller because they want to be the genius in the room. They want to be the one with the smartest ideas. They want to be the one who uh, come ups with, kind of comes up with the, the final decision. So the diminishers just kind of to, to work with, you know, what would be a really interesting stat is, is to say, you know, if, if you had a multiplier running a company or not even running a company, but a manager within a company, you can tell who the multipliers are. What's your attrition rate? You get working with a diminisher and you can see the body language in the room. You wonder if they're going to start having health trouble, how down the team is and for so long and, and nothing seems right and you can't really do anything well. Not, yeah. not their idea, so not the right idea. Yeah, and it really impacts the team dynamic as well too. Like it gets to a point where I think the the team uh, doesn't feel like they can challenge the leader. They don't feel that they can disagree with the leader. They can question the leader. And when when you're in that sort of space, uh, it's really tough to be creative and innovative and do your best work. 
and the team stops having the the crucial conversations that they need to have in order to have breakthroughs. Yeah. And so the what the what the, what the problem ends up being is that the diminisher, you know, will have a meeting and ask like, so do you guys have any thoughts or ideas or any is there any problems that we need to talk about today? Everybody goes silent. Nobody wants to talk about it. And the diminisher thinks, oh, well, I've got a great team. We don't we don't have any conflict. There are no we don't, there's no issues. Well, there's all kinds of issues, but people don't want to talk to you about them because they're afraid of how you're going to respond and react. And, oh. you know, like absence of conflict is not the sign of harmony on a team. Okay. Yeah. And absence of conflict. If, if somebody, if I have a leader that tells me, yeah, our team never fights. We have, we get along all the time. I'm like, I'm concerned about that, that situation. Because the mark of a great team is a team who can get together and have a good old fashioned debate around an issue and an idea and they can question yeah. each other and, and, you know, disagree with each other, not to be difficult, but to discover a best action that everybody can commit to or a best decision. That's the mark of a great team. I love that. Uh, the last project that I ran had a quick consulting engagement and the team used to make fun of me there because I used to, I used to have this phrase, I would say, debate it with me. Come on, let's 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 go through the pros and cons here. I want to I want someone to debate it with me. Yeah. And after a yeah. while, they were teasing me because it was I'd say it I would say it uh, too often, I guess. But but I love it oh, I, because I love that I too. Think, I think that's all ideas in. So when I do risk assessments on a project, I'll intentionally not allow people to say anything in the room. So you get a bunch of people in a room, you get these sticky notes, and I'll say, okay, you got three minutes. Write down all the risks that you see on the project. Go fast you can. Well, the reason that I don't want anyone to say anything is because of the exact example that you just gave. The No one feels safe to challenge the leader. So if the leader pipes up and says, I know what the risks are, here they are, one, two, three. We're done, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> then if you're shy or if you don't want to challenge them, then you're not going to get that information. And so what I found is that these shy people that are working on these projects, you know what? They're often the ones that are observing. And they know that there's this great big train heading at you, but, but unless you, unless you're able to cultivate that environment of, you know, everyone can contribute. We're going to listen to you when you speak. You're really missing out on all these great ideas that these people have. It uh, makes my skin crawl when you're around these diminishers that won't yeah. allow that. They're missing out so much. Oh, without question. They're, they're missing out on, on information that could prevent a disaster. I love the trade analogy that you, that you brought up. And also what's really great about what you suggested with the, you know, just in silence, write down your, your thoughts on these sticky notes. Nobody else is influencing anybody else in the room. Right. Right. In a, in a, in an open sort of discussion, and there's, uh, there's times to have the open discussion, but when you're trying to get ideas that are not influenced by anybody else, if you just throw a question out, it's so easy for other people to say, yeah, I feel the same way as Jane does, or I feel the right. same way as Matt does. And then you don't get any original ideas or any original pushback. You get groupthink. Right. And uh, so that your, your process is really great as far as like getting those original thoughts out. And I love as well too, about that debate me statement. I do that as well too. And I'm facilitating. I'm like, okay, challenge me. Like I just Ooh. presented something to you. Is this, is this, uh, truth, do you think? Do you see this working? Do you disagree with it? Because if you disagree with it, talk to me because that deepens my learning as well too, right? So I, know. I love, love that it. Love it. So yeah. listen, I want to ask you a question. We're, uh, we had a great session today. Before mm. we finish it up, I want to ask you this question. So I want I want you to picture a scenario of, this is a little more of it. I'm going to get a little more of it on you. My apologies okay. in advance. Yeah, you're, yeah. On your, you're on your deathbed. Oh, sorry. Okay. But you're on your deathbed. <laughs> 
let's take the scenario of grandson comes in. Your grandson's a, you know, 19-year-old, about to go out into the work world and, and has finished some schooling, he's transitioning, what have you. What are some of the things that you would want to make sure that you pass on to him? Yeah. Uh, okay, two, two things. One thing I would encourage him to do is to always seek clarity as to who you are as a person, to really understand yourself, but never stop striving to envision a better version of yourself. I love it. Yeah. So always, always know where, where are you right now and who are you? Who are you being today and who do you want to become and always be striving and have that hunger to, to learn and to grow and to develop? Because if I could instill that in him, then, uh, he's, he's going to be useful for others in a long time. Cause really it's for me, Ron, it's about service to others, right? And I can only be of service to others if I'm growing. So I'd want to pass that on to him. The second thing I'd want to pass on to him is, to, to get him to really take the time to clarify his, his personal values. Like what, what really ultimately matters to him and to really get clear definition around that. Because I know early in my career, I, I went through the exercise of clarifying my values and it became a, a system for making decisions and taking actions. If it, if what I was about to step into didn't align with my personal values, then it was an easy decision to make. Right. So it was just, you know, such a great, great way to clarify, uh, what really matters, what's important, what your priorities are. So I would say, yeah, clarify your values and use those values to make decisions and take actions that are in alignment with who you are and who you want to become. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Well, I love spending time with you today. So thank you for, thank you for spending some time with us and, and letting us know what's going on with you. Before I move on though, I forgot to mention you had a book that came out this year, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I did actually. I was uh, invited to be part of a co-authoring project with uh, 25 other authors, and the book is called "Dreaming Big, Being Bold: Volume Two: Inspiring Stories for Trailblazers, Visionaries, and Change Makers." So, quite an interesting journey to be, you know, an author now and to be able to say, "Yeah, I'm a published author." It's kind of a neat, it. kind of a neat space to <laughs> well, be in. So, you told me that you you flew up to London to meet a bunch of. Of the authors, 25 different authors, is that right? Yeah, we got together for an event to kick off the launch of the book and got to meet other other people that uh, contributed stories and, and life lessons. So it was a real great experience just to be in that space of, of people who had that creative mindset, right? And and people who are just positive, genuine, great people to be around. Like we talked about likability today, Ron, and these people are likable people, right? You just wanted to be spending time with them and, and some amazing stories of how they've overcome obstacles in their own life to to get to where they are. So um, really great, great space to be in and, and a great network of people to be connected to. Oh, yeah. that's great. That's great. Yeah. When are you going to write your book, Ron? Well, you... <laughs> <laughs> I haven't Throw your curveball. I tell you though, we, um, so on on managing projects, uh, I've done my my very first ebook, which I just published. Um, yes. And so you can find that on the site. There's there's a link to it there, in the top menu. But you know what? That was a a neat experience for me. And so really just getting started on the journey of authoring ebooks and and that kind of thing. What a great way to get your thoughts down on paper and and to try and help somebody out. You know. So so 
with with that particular book. It's around estimating of IT projects. And I was with a company uh, about 10 years ago that spent a, a really focused effort around why are our estimates so variable and and we should study that was the leadership view. And so we did. And we, we developed the systematic approach to estimating. It really made you think differently about estimates. And so I enjoyed that process so much. Um, in fact, I was part of the process to help study it for our company and then to help train people on using this estimation process. I got asked to speak at a developer conference called uh, Maritime DevCon. And I spoke to the audience about some of these lessons learned from estimating and the mindset that you need to get into and, and, and that kind of thing. And you know what's the, the main takeaway for me? I personally feel that uh, at least in a projectized environment, your estimates are probably going to define the culture more than most of the, your other tasks that you're going to do on a daily basis there. So uh, this is what I mean by that. So you go into an AIT shop. Developers are going to say we're overworked. We don't have enough time to do our work. Um, management, uh, they keep harping on us because we, we ran a project and, and we didn't get it done in time and they had so much allocation, we, we went over. But it all stems back to did you really understand and have a thoughtful view on your estimation? So the scenario I go through in, in my ebook is the scenario of a manager comes and, and says, can you build a screen for me? And the developer says, sure, just give me a day. Seems pretty easy. Build a screen, I can do that. And, but then, so what I do in my, my ebook is I give you these checklists of things to say, hey, if you asked your manager to be more specific, so is it going to be hung off of another application that's already working? Do you want this to also work in the DR environment once it goes live? Are you asking me to test the screen? or be part of some of the testing of it? Are the requirements already written for the screen? Can I see them? Or do you want me to sit in a requirements management? Because what happens is you do a quick estimate and then you find yourself, you've attended four meetings about it, but you haven't done the work yet because they haven't told you really what they want. And then you're, you've already gone through the estimate. So, so this was such a pattern in some of these IT companies that I was with that, that it is really, really helpful to have these types of conversations with your managers because it's just, your manager will look at you and say, why don't you just, Tell me what the estimate is. So I just asked you for a screen. And you, you can go through this checklist with them and say, if I understood where you wanted it to run, how thorough is it, um, you know, do you want me to rate the, all the install documents, then it really helps to shape the conversation. You can evolve your company so easily. And it's not rocket science. It's just slowing down long enough to say, what are you asking for? Um, so anyway, this, the whole ebook thing was really neat. Just had a great time doing it. Awesome. Well, this is great, Ron. Well, thanks so much, Mike. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Managing Projects podcast. Find show notes and more at managingprojects.ca and follow us on Twitter at manage underscore P-R-O-J. If you enjoy the show, help us out by recommending it to a friend or leaving a review on iTunes. Talk to you next time.